Hey everybody, Nate here. Uh, before we get going on this episode, I just want to acknowledge that the ABA is aware of the very serious and credible allegations made against a frequent contributor and guest on this podcast, Jason Ward. Uh, if you're wondering why we don't talk about those allegations in this episode, it's because we recorded these parts before they were made public. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about the fallout and what the ABA is doing next week. A lot of things are moving very fast, and uh, it might be nice to have just a little bit of space before we really dig into that. So thank you so much for your patience, and on with the episode. Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with field guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com slash ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. I hope you all are staying warm, especially those of you in the middle of the ABA area, and especially, especially those of you who are maintaining those feeding stations in this abnormal polar vortex eruption. Can I call it an eruption if it's meteorological instead of biological? Sure feels like it. I'm not sure. Extra proper to those of you maintaining hummingbird stations in freezing temperatures. That is dedication. I've been following Juita Martinez on Twitter of late. She is a birder in Louisiana who has a diverse clientele of hummingbird visitors at her home, as is frequently the case in Louisiana this time of year. And she's been documenting the lengths that she is going to to maintain her hummingbird feeder set up in the bitter cold. And that is bitter by anyone's standards, not the relatively mild Louisiana standards. Anyway, it, in, it involves wool socks, drying racks, space heaters, bubble wrap. It is a it is a dissertation on clever Rube Goldbergian designs to keep feeders functioning. And it is delightful, though I do hope that Juita warms up soon because she certainly deserves that. I will be completely honest here, and you can take away my birding credentials if you like because of this revelation I'm going to lay on you, but it is part of the reason why I don't feed birds. I just, I don't, I don't do it. It can be a lot of work, and I have nothing but respect for the people like Juita who do it and do it right, but it is not me, partly because of all the effort and partly because of the outdoor cat situation in my neighborhood. I think I would too frequently get worked up. Uh, about my neighbor's cats, and I, I don't need that right now. Not when we're all in sort of a too close to the breaking point area as it is. Uh, though now I'm thinking about it, I can, I can certainly see the advantage of taking my general COVID anxieties out and directing them at the two or three neighborhood cats I see from time to time. Maybe that's healthy. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not a therapist. And third, my, my workspace is not conducive to watching a feeder, and I'd like to be able to do that if I put in all that work. Though I will say that if I have, I have considered putting a microphone on the roof of my house before spring migration, so I do have plans for that yard list. On the show today, I'm going to riff a little about a thing that's been on my mind lately, and that is what we say to each other in the field, and what is or isn't helpful, and what is or isn't welcome. It's a thing I have talked a little bit about in this month in birding, I think, but I have some more things to say. It's a, it's a story about good intentions and sort of mixed outcomes. But first, one of the most endangered birds on the continent is a little streaky brown thing that can be found in Florida prairies that you might not have even heard about. 
It is the story of the Florida grasshopper sparrow. It is a story of hope and perseverance and a little luck. Andrew Walker, president of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Foundation, is here to help tell it. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of February 2021. It's another slower week for everything except for Red Wings. For the third consecutive week, we have European thrushes to report new sightings from British Columbia, New Brunswick, and another in Nova Scotia, bringing the current total by my count to 10 so far this year. I don't know what the standard for an eruption is, but we're close if we're not there already. Look out Long Island. Look out Cape May. It would not surprise me if some of those well-known migrant traps turn to red wing traps at some point this winter. Another interesting eruptive record from the past week, a Cassin's finch was found visiting a feeder in Hinton, Oklahoma, in the central part of the state. This is the first record for Oklahoma away from the panhandle, where there are still very few. Imagine the panhandle of Oklahoma adds a lot of birds to that state's list. You may or maybe not remember back in the fall when we published on the ABA website a report in our North American Birds section about how this was going to be a good year for montane species spreading into the lowlands to the east of the Rockies, Mountain Chickadee, Woodhouse's Scrub Jay were the standard bearers for this phenomenon. But Cassin's Finch, too. In fact, this was the second notable Cassin's Finch record of the winter. There was the Michigan first record late in 2020. Makes you wonder how many of these have been overlooked as purple finches, which is also seeing a significant eruption this year. Those are the ABA area rarity highlights of the last week. As always, for more complete look, you can check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert on Friday mornings at aba.org slash rba, or you can go to the Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash aba rare, or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. One of the most underrated bird stories of the last few years has been the rapid decline of the resident Florida subspecies of grasshopper sparrow. In 2017, that population reached a record low of 75 wild birds, and many thought it would fade into extinction, much like the dusky seaside sparrow before it, but enter a working group of biologists and conservationists who sprang into action to pull it back from the brink. This was led in part by the Fish and Wildlife Foundation of Florida, whose president, Andrew Walker, is with me to chat about this underappreciated bird. Uh, Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Nate. I'm glad to be here with ABA. Can you talk a little bit about what things looked like for this bird, for the Florida grasshopper sparrow, as recently as maybe five years ago? Sure. So the Florida grasshopper sparrow is a ground-nesting subspecies of the eastern grasshopper sparrow. And uh, whereas eastern grasshopper sparrows migrate, the Florida grasshopper sparrow is a year-round resident of Florida's dry prairies. Dry prairies are, as they sound, flat, uh, perfect for building. And the bird has suffered from quite a bit of habitat loss and other other associated stresses. Five years ago, um, the decision was made that the bird needed some direct intervention or that extinction was all but certain. A uh, population had started to crash in 1997 for a variety of reasons. Again, most of them related to habitat loss. So back five years ago, um, the idea of bringing some of these birds into captivity and uh, being captively bred and released back out into the wild was a very controversial notion. Mm -hmm. But um, everyone working on it came to the conclusion that that was the only option available. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. You know, we think when I think of captive breeding 
of endangered species, it's usually like raptors. You know, there's this long track record of of this this process working with birds of prey. How do you breed a, like a little tiny secretive nervous grasshopper sparrow in captivity? It's a it's a great question, and it was um, worked out, frankly, by a couple of institutions. Uh, the folks have done the best with it is a little-known conservation organization in northeastern Florida called White Oak Conservation. It's a nonprofit organization with very powerful history. Uh, and these days, it is largely concerned with breeding uh, endangered species. Most of those species are African. Uh, so, you know, rhinos, uh, gazelles, oh, uh, as rare zebra. opposite as you can be with grasshopper sparrow. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of mass, certainly. <laughs> absolutely. But they had done some breeding of and continue to with, um, with rare birds, Indian condors, uh, hooping hmm. cranes and the like. But Florida grasshopper sparrows presented a special challenge. And uh, Andrew Schumann, who is the lead scientist for this project up there, said that Working the grasshopper sparrow actually allowed them to hire uh, veterinarians who um, were, in fact, a lot more sophisticated about bird biology than the people they've been working with. So it's allowed them to expand their repertoire because these are very tricky little birds. There were concerns at one point about whether there would be disease uh, issues by bringing them into captivity and catching diseases and releasing them back in to infect the wild population. And that was one of the things that um, that scientists with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, White Oak, and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission had to work out very carefully. And so far, um, that's been very well managed, and we've not had any issues. When they keep them in captivity, do they keep them in sort of like flight cages, sort of set up on the habitat? Because I imagine that the habitat that the Florida, that the grasshopper sparrow needs is, is very specific. Like they, they like that dry prairie. Um, you know, that's, it's typical of that, that genus of, of, of sparrow. How do you recreate that in a captive setting? And as part of that, how do you impart uh, natural instincts to birds yeah. you're raising yeah. in captivity? So what White Oak has tried to do with input from the various partners is try to recreate the dry prairie to the extent that they can. So mm-hmm. they work in a cleared area that gets burned frequently. Yeah. Uh, the uh, They build uh, big um, screened-in areas in which to uh, place the birds. And the vegetation is um, identical inside and outside of that area. They also make sure they're adult birds within earshot of the young birds once they've been mm-hmm. uh, fledged uh, so that they're picking up the native calls, uh, some of the behaviors that they can mimic, etc. The nest uh, cages are, are easy to take down and put up so yeah. that when they do have to come in and burn, you know, everything can be removed and then put back down on the landscape. And the and in the areas where these birds are being released in the wild, um, it's a very similar type of structure, uh, so that it's something the birds are uh, used to. Huh. That's really interesting. So, does like you just release a male bird inside these cages and they'll sing as you know normal, and then you put in a female at that point, and it feels like it is it is actually attracted to that female rather than sort of the the conservationist or the biologist sort of you know, making that, that connection in a more artificial way? 
Yes, and uh, and then uh, there are there are also um, there's also reproduction and nesting happening with within the laboratories and little mm-hmm. cubicles, and then the birds tend to be moved out into into the larger cages. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I grew up hearing about the dusky seaside sparrow. Um, it was officially declared extinct in 1990. That's sort of when I started really paying attention to birds. Uh, was there a sense among conservationists, among the people that were concerned about this grasshopper sparrow, that they would not let that happen again? That's exactly what drove this. Uh, you're quite right about the dusky seaside sparrow. By the time there was an effort made to bring them into uh, captivity for breeding, uh, there were only five males left. and. Mm-hmm. The last male um, was in the care of Disney World and ultimately died, and that was the end of the species. So, and we've seen the same thing in the bat world, where people have acted yeah. too late to try to protect endangered bats and found only, you know, one one gender. So, uh, I think it can safely be said that um, in this case, people acted just in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the population had continued to crash, and as you said, five years ago, it's looking very bleak. And um, and 2018 was really the uh, low point, and we were down to fewer than 30 nesting pairs uh, left in the world. Yeah. What are the sort of stresses on this habitat? You know, you talked about the mm-hmm. fire being fire prevention. You know, that's that's a common story. I live in the southeast as well. You know, we see the need for fire, regular fire on the landscape is such a critical aspect of a lot of our southeastern endangered birds. I'm thinking things like red cockaded woodpecker and Bachman sparrow and, and the like. Um, is, is, it, is that sort of the, the limiting factor that's really driving the, the decline of this, mm-hmm. of this bird is people not wanting to burn the landscape as regularly as it, as it needs to be burned because of encroaching, encroaching development for the most part? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. So that's been one of the um, success stories coming out of this Mm -hmm. is that um, FWC scientists working with these birds out in the field have learned that um, burning needs to be even more frequent than we typically burn prairie ecosystems. The uh, sparrows really won't nest on land that hasn't been burned either this year or the previous year. A lot of fire regimes are three to five years across Florida. So that was um, not creating the type of habitat that they needed, even though it mm-hmm. looked virtually identical to, you know, to our eyes. Yeah, the birds can tell. <laughs> and the other pressures on habitat related to habitat loss are, are uh, predation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the birds, when you're down to a few birds and they tend to be in just a few places, um, predation by by other birds or uh, small land mammals or or reptiles becomes uh, much more of an of a critical stress. Added to that is the uh, is the presence of red uh, fire ants, which of course are a non-native species, invasive species in the United States, and that's um, proved to be one of the great um, great uh, threats to Florida grasshopper sparrows. So. In recovering this bird is often true with endangered species. You move from one puzzle to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's the ideal habitat? How do we control predators? How do we make sure disease is not an issue? How do we instill nat- natural instincts in captive birds? How do we be successful in breeding captive birds? 
introduced, you know, Florida is sort of known for its large population of introduced exotic species of a right. great many different <laughs> taxa. Um, has that influence, has that impacted the grasshopper sparrow in any way? Um, you know, non-native reptiles, non-native birds, non-native whatever insects, um, you know, affecting these populations negatively. Aside from fire ants, obviously. Sure. You know, the remaining populations, and there, there are four that are known, are in the midst of uh, very rural areas within the headwaters, the Everglades in Osceola County. And so they don't have a lot of perimeter problems because these are large landscapes. Um, so, you know, uh, cats and cats mm. or dogs and things like that aren't aren't going to be an issue for them given where they're nesting. Um, it seems to be that the only endangered uh, invasive species rather that has really impacted them to date has been the fire ant. Is there a difference in the, the government response to a subspecies versus a full species? Um, does that affect how you go about you know, making conservation decisions for a bird like mm-hmm. this? It hasn't really, because mm-hmm. um, uh, the federal government does recognize subspecies um, by their own classification in terms of threatened, of concern, or or endangered. And so the Florida grasshopper sparrow does have endangered status. Mm-hmm. So it's it's treated very much like any other endangered species or subspecies. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of in terms of like the dusky seaside sparrow, right? Right. We, when we think of endangered species or extinct species that we have lost in North America, we frequently think of things like ivory-billed woodpecker, or Bachman's warbler, or, or passenger pigeon, or things like that. The subspecies don't seem to get as much attention, or it's almost like it's an afterthought. Um, do you think it's important for regular, you know, non-conservation folks, non-wildlife people, to sort of appreciate the subspecific variation? of this bird, especially in terms of its conservation, do you think that affects how people think about this bird, how people approach this bird? Mm-hmm. The, I think there's been increasing uh, appreciation for what you might call outlying genetic populations, and certainly mm-hmm. subspecies mm-hmm. are a prime example of that. And, and I think that subspecies are getting more and more attention yeah. as deserving of conservation. I think for the average person, there's a great deal of of uh, psychological pride in knowing that um, you know the Florida grasshopper sparrow is distinct from the eastern grasshopper sparrow. It doesn't migrate. It's a year-round resident in Florida and um, endemic, therefore, to Florida, and, and needs to be protected. So, if uh, if a birder were to come down and look at a Florida grasshopper sparrow versus the grasshopper sparrow that a lot of birders in the eastern part of the continent are are pretty familiar with. Is there any difference that you would notice? Um, there is some. I would say that um, you have to be pretty well trained. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for a couple of reasons. One is um, there are differences in in their song, um, oh, okay. but people have to be pretty well well-trained in the, in the songs of an eastern grasshopper sparrow to, to pick up the differences. They're also such cryptic birds. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be 10 feet away and staring right at one and never <laughs> yes. see it. So that um, your best chance, you know, is looking at the males when they're, when they're um, um, staking out their territory, sitting on higher, higher pieces of grass. Um, but even then, it's, it's, um, 
you have to, it's it's subtle. You really have to, um, you know, you you really have to rely on the fact that um, where this population is and the fact mm-hmm. that it's year round and not not migrating. Those are the big differences. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's clear that we're not out of the woods with this bird at all. Um, what does success look like for the people working on it, and what is required? What is still required? Success for the Florida grasshopper sparrow um, is really about ensuring that we have stable populations of the bird that um, are slowly increasing, that um, we have enough separate populations so that if anything were to happen to one particular population, it would not threaten the entire uh, subspecies. So that means making sure that we get uh, species, making sure we have also at the same time sufficient genetic variation mm-hmm. um, in in the population. And that's been one of the uh, good news is that even though we got down to 30 breeding pairs in uh, four separate populations, uh, the genetics um, were still very diverse among that small group of birds. Mm-hmm. So that's that's not been a, an immediate worry for us. So genetic diversity larger numbers, increasing numbers, and enough separate populations. So we're in the middle of a five-year uh, effort to to jumpstart the uh, recovery of this bird. And, you know, frankly, thanks to captive breeding and the breakthroughs that we've made in, in terms of um, excluding predators from nests using open open uh, fences that are short, open to the air, so the birds can come and go, but nonetheless are discouraging enough to mammals. And then treating fire ant nests largely yeah. with uh, boiling water, huh. uh, which has no environmental impact. We're seeing the numbers um, trending upward. Uh, probably the most significant thing last year was we've been breeding sparrows for about five years. But it was um, only last year that we started releasing captive bred birds that we felt we had enough to start breeding. And of the um, of the birds that were successfully fledged in 2020, two thirds of them came from nests where at least one parent was a captive bred bird. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing captive bred birds, both male and female, breeding um, among each, among their own population as well as with wild birds with no ill eff- no ill effects and that is a you know almost sounds like it's almost an immediate response like you're seeing those results within that first breeding season after you release those birds into the wild uh we did and and yeah, and survivorship yeah and survivorship over the winter was high enough that it really did have an impact on the population as we said wow. So do they disperse between you? You, t- you said that there are three or four, you know, clusters, I suppose, mm-hmm. of, of these birds. Um, do they disperse among those clusters or do they still require people to, you know, move them among those 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 groups so that you can, you know, spread that genetic diversity as best you can? Uh, we only have one year of season. Sure. Seasonal data. So the answer to that question is still to be determined. Mm-hmm. We don't think that we have to do any. Um, translocation of birds from one population to another, at least not yet. Um, once the birds, the birds, when they're brought to the wild, they're allowed to acclimate for between 24 and 48 hours, typically before they open the doors of the 
cages and and they may hang around for a day or two around the cage but then then they disperse Mm -hmm. so you know we're largely tracking the birds where in the populations where they've um where they've been released where most of the nesting happens but um but we're not accounting for all the birds so there is there is hope that they are um finding these other populations or maybe pop or maybe in places that we haven't yet discovered it's possible that there are some populations in some of the private ranches still mm-hmm. in the Osceola County area. Yeah. So so where do you go from here? What does the 2021-2022 look like for this project? Sure. Well, um, <clears throat> we had released 150 birds by the time that nesting season came around last year. And since then, there's been another 100 birds released. And uh, new releases will start uh, this month here in February. So we have at least, you know, 100 released birds already that weren't part of the nesting population last year. So we're very excited to see how many of those turn up. And then, you know, some of the birds that will be released this month and and in March, um, some will be probably too young to nest this year, but some will probably be one-year birds that could. So we'll be watching to see what this additional boost of um, captive birds does to to the breeding at the um, principal release site. The other thing that's very exciting we'll be working on in November, a woman named Elizabeth DeLuca, um, whose family had founded the Subway restaurant chain, Mm -hmm. donated, I know, donated (laughs) 27,000 acres uh, to the University of Florida as as an agricultural and ecological research station. It's a once in a generation gift of land. It's um, it was fair market value was about one hundred and eleven million dollars. Wow! And at the same time, she donated a permanent conservation easement over the property to Ducks Unlimited, and uh, our foundation has been helping fund uh, that easement, and we've committed two hundred thousand dollars overall to to the project about half of which will probably go into management of rare species on the property. Well, the good news relating to the sparrow is that this 27,000 acres does hold one of those four populations oh, right. of sparrows. And and, and uh, last year, there were nine nesting pairs, which is about a third of the world population of nesting pairs on this property. And there's a good chance for um, additional habitat improvement on, on that property. So the University of Florida has formed a working group that will look at how they're planning to use this land um, for education and conservation, and uh, we'll be uh, part of that group, as will other agencies. And we're really looking forward to that because um, uh, it's a beautiful piece of property, very diverse. And there is dry prairie habitat there that birds are using now, actually in association with cattle grazing. But there's another 2,800 20, acre of dry prairie there that uh, is a little woody and overgrown that might be a great place to yeah. uh, establish a fifth population. A couple burn cycles later and you might have something, something e- there. Exactly. And, and roller chopping, which you do every once in a while to clear yeah. out the woody vegetation. Yeah, Subway seems like such a such an odd uh, partner, but I know in conservation you sort of take uh, you take whatever you can a lot of times, and uh, yeah, sometimes those things really really work out uh, for the best. And we really hope it inspires other ranchers. Uh, you know, there's yeah. a strong conservation ethic among most Florida ranchers, and quite a few ranches are 
the ranchers have donated conservation easement, but this was, you know, an outright gift to the entire property. And, and uh, that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Andrew Walker is the president and CEO of the Fish and Wildlife Foundation of Florida. You can find a link to their work with the Florida Grasshopper Sparrow in the show notes. I'll have them down there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and best of luck going forward. Well, thanks so much. And, you know, I so appreciate everything that you're doing with your podcast to make more and more people aware of what a wonderful world we have flying about us. Oh, thank you so much. What is the first thing you say to an unknown birder you encounter in the field? You're walking along at a local hotspot. You pass a birder on the path. You nod your head. You say, see anything good? I am 100% guilty of this, to be fair, lest anyone think that I am going to play the holier-than-thou card and criticize only behaviors that I am not guilty of. This has been four years my go-to. I am not an outgoing person by nature, and I do appreciate having a sort of generally accepted greeting that keeps me from having to think too much in these interactions. That is, for the most part, my priority. So what does the person say in response? Well, it could be a mix. They can say something that I would legitimately think is, you know, quote unquote, good in the birderly way of speaking, something unusual or rare. It could be something common that they are enjoying. Whatever. I, I don't judge. I don't tend to put a lot of emphasis on these interactions. As I said, it is more about the acknowledgement of the other person. And occasionally you get usable information, but that's not that's not really the intent. But lately I've been thinking more about these little exchanges and how they are interpreted. And and part of this has to do with my regular social media interaction with, with more novice birders, birders who are coming into our community without the long history that includes all the weird jargony things we say to each other that only feel normal when you've been doing them so long you don't, you don't know any other way. I think it's good to reevaluate that stuff sometimes, keep the good things throw out the not so good things. And I am increasingly of the opinion that some of the ways that we interact with each other in the field need to be sort of reassessed because of the potential for misinterpretation. Starting with that chestnut, seen anything good? Why, you might ask, should we do this? Well, I got two reasons for you. The first is that it presupposes that we all have the same idea of what is good, and we don't. And if you interpret wrong, say, for instance, you're a novice birder who's still working out what is expected and what isn't expected, you might interpret that question as kind of a pop quiz that you you haven't even studied for. And in fact, I've heard enough people say that they interpret it that way to curtail my own use unless I'm, I'm chatting with someone I already know. And second, bear with me on this one. It sort of frames the interaction in a way that is clearly more to the benefit of the questioner rather than the recipient. So I am asking for information that is for me, not necessarily sharing information that is beneficial to the person that I'm engaging with. Now, I may have gone down a rabbit hole of navel gazing here. I admit this, but I do think there's something to be said for conversation that includes rather than excludes, especially if it ends up giving you the same sort of information that you want in the first place. And I should be clear here that I don't think any of this is intentional. It's just something we say because it's something said to us and it made sense, so we keep doing it. And it's nice to have a ready-to-go birding-specific greeting. I 100% acknowledge that. I don't think anyone is saying these things intending to be exclusive. But I, th I think it can't happen. 
And I have some ideas for some other bird and greetings without, you know, similar baggage. And I will just throw these out there to the crowd for your consideration. Uh, and they're of a theme and frequently elicit the same sort of response as seeing anything good. So next time I'm out birding and I encounter someone on the trail, regardless of how I determine their birding experience, I will say, what are you seeing? And the answer could be, you know, that unusual bird or, or something like I'm, I'm watching this cat bird or those scrub jays are pretty cool. Or perhaps instead of good, I can say interesting. Seen anything interesting? Much broader way of approaching your observations. Because I've seen a lot of interesting things that aren't necessarily quote unquote good in the birderly sense. Maybe it will make some novice birder more inclined to stick with it. Maybe we end up with fewer stories of the jerk birder genre. I know I'm, I, I, I don't like hearing those. Maybe you find this take interesting, though fair play if you don't find it particularly good. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Please consider joining the ABA if you like what we do here. Uh, you get access to our print publications. They are all about birds. And who doesn't like magazines about birds? Discounts to our partners and our thanks as we build that better bird community in the U.S., Canada, and the world. Get more information about all our memberships, including e-memberships at aba.org slash join. I want to make some shout outs to Mallory Webb of Grand Rapids, Michigan, Liam Reagan of Victoria, British Columbia, Brian Dudek of San Francisco, California, Victoria Wartz and the Wartz family of Evansville, Indiana, Nina Brundle of Quinton, Virginia, Curtis Alexander of Fort Worth, Texas, Colleen Resendez and the Resendez family of Hales Corners, Wisconsin, James Corgle of Rowlett, Texas, Ray Finney and the Finney household of St. Paul, Minnesota, William Harmon of Glenville, West Virginia, Sarah, main guy and the main guys of Push Lynch, Ontario, Dan Roth, and the Roth family of Oakland, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that, friends. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who was inspired by Subway's generous donation to help conserve the Florida grasshoppers sparrow and is now calling on Home Depot to do whatever it can to maintain essential habitat for the house sparrows in the lawn and garden section. Technical production is by John Lowry. We'd like to see Sherwin-Williams paint join the fight to protect flycatchers, hawks, and vireos as the only other community to regularly use the words vermilion, ferruginous, and plumbius. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, neither of whom, neither of whom can look at a cinnamon teal without wondering why McCormick Spices isn't deeply engaged in waterfowl conservation efforts. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I was watching a big flock of gulls fly from the lake to the landfill the other day, and I couldn't help imagining those ring-billed gulls with a big diamond on the tip of their bill and the messaging, they went to Jared's for conservation easements on critical nesting grounds. Questions, comments, and corrections can come to podcast.eba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.